Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, Wow, today we have a great one for a change. And this time, this time I mean it, uh, Mayor Melvin Carter... Mayor of St. Paul, first black mayor of St. Paul, is with me for a great, great conversation. And this time, I mean it. Now, let me say something about that, the this time I mean it thing. I got an email from a listener, and I won't say her name. Let's call her Enid Gubo. Anyway, she wrote, Al, I'm a big fan, love the podcast, but I had to write you because I listened to your interview, and I don't want to embarrass this guest, so let's just call him Steve Schmidt. And uh, I listened all the way through, and I have to say, it never got to be what I would call great. Okay, first of all, I thought it was great, but look, Enid, a podcast is show business. And when I say, this is a great one this time, I mean it, I don't always mean it, okay? But this one, with Melvin Carter, I do. You will really love Melvin. Fabulous guy. And it all comes from his parents. Melvin two, Melvin the mayor is Melvin three, uh, and Tony. Now, Tony is a county commissioner. She's chair now of the whole county commission. And Melvin two was a cop. And we discussed that, being the first black mayor of St. Paul and his dad having been a a St. Paul cop. And his dad was a great cop, a community policeman who started a uh, nonprofit called Save Our Sons, uh, which Melvin talks about. And we have a pretty wide-ranging discussion, including talking about the historical disparities in St. Paul. Melvin grew up in the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul, beautiful, historically black neighborhood. And Roy Wilkins, who was a great civil rights leader during the 60s, grew up in the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul. And here's what he wrote about it. And this is him growing up in the 1920s, late 1920s. It is a riot of warm colors, feeling, and sounds. Music is in abundance from victrolas, saxophones, player pianos, and hurry-up orchestras. It sees with the pulsating beauty of the lives of its people. Okay, that's Rondo, a great neighborhood. Now, a few decades ago, they put a freeway through Rondo without telling anybody, basically, and they confiscated property of homeowners, including Melvin's grandmother, and they gave folks pennies on the dollar, and then... Melvin tells about the fire department burning down his grandmother's house as an exercise for the trainees in the fire department. Now, before we go to Melvin, I want to go to Chris Montana, who is a business owner in Minneapolis. He uh, is the first black owner of a micro distillery in the United States. Now, Chris Rock, my friend, says he does not like to give a lot of credit to any first black entrepreneur who started a business that has nothing to do with being black. That's what Chris says. (laughs) 
Chris Montana is the owner of this distillery, and uh, it it got severe damage during the civil uh, disturbances after the murder of George Floyd. He's going to be fine. He has insurance, but he has started a GoFundMe to help other black and brown-owned businesses in Minneapolis and in the Twin Cities. And I'm doing something to help that with Sarah Silverman. We love Sarah Silverman here on the Al Franken podcast. And we're going to be doing a a virtual cocktail party that you can be a participant in if you win the raffle. We have a raffle. So you can go to to alfranken.com to find out all the information, and you can enter this raffle with a chance to have a virtual cocktail party uh, with me, Sarah Silverman, and Chris Montana. And uh, you don't even have to donate to get into the raffle, but don't be a schmuck. Okay? So if you enter, you got to give, or I will see you in hell. So I'm going to talk to Chris Montana now, and after that, with Melvin Carter, the mayor of St. Paul. With me, uh, as promised, uh, Chris Montana, the first black owner of a spirits distillery. Is that right? Micro distillery, yeah. And it's do Nord Craft Spirits in Correct. Minneapolis. And the place sustained... Uh, some uh, damage from uh, being set on fire. Is that correct? During the demonstrations. Yeah, our warehouse had about five fires set inside of it. Listen, people get a word picture of somebody when when they're on here, and we can't. We, this isn't video, so I just want to make sure on the name. We we've discussed this, Chris Montana. It's complicated how you got Montana. Your birth mother got divorced, and when she got divorced, she just wanted. She didn't want her maiden name. She didn't want her married name so she just liked montana so you are chris montana i'll tell you why i just say this uh i just do not want my audience to get the idea that uh they may be giving money to a black guy who's wearing like a fringe jacket cowboy boots and a stetson (laughs) riding a motorcycle Or worse, a horse or something. And, you know, you get a kind of word picture of, of who I'm talking to. And I just want to make sure that the Montana part, that's not you. That that part. That picture. It usually throws people. <laughs> okay, let's go to the actual important stuff. Um, okay, you are in the Lake Street neighborhood? Yes. And uh, that's where uh, Denord Crass is. And you got you had insurance. You had good insurance, right? How good it is remains to be seen. I mean, that, but we do have insurance, and it's it's going to help us deal with the with the losses. So you're putting together a GoFundMe that Sarah Silverman and I will be helping, and that I hope my listeners will be helping. If they want to, they can go to alfranken.com. And I just want them to know that none of this will be going to you or your micro distillery. Yeah, the the purpose of the GoFundMe is to help the other businesses who might be in a little bit of a worse uh, situation than we are. Uh, As you mentioned, we have insurance. We'll see what it pays out, but it's going to pay out something. A lot of people have none or they're massively underinsured. And we want to get some money in the people's pockets quickly so that we don't lose some of these businesses that added to the diversity of businesses along the Lake Street Corridor and other places in the Twin Cities. I'll get back to the uh, GoFundMe in, in, in a bit, but I, I just want folks to know how dedicated you are to your community. Immediately after the, uh, the demonstration and the fires, uh, you also started a, a, a food pantry, uh, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you can call it what you want. I've alternatively call it a food bank, food shelf. Um, one way or the other, we're trying to get the needed essentials into community hands. We had a Target, we had a Cub Foods, we had another grocery store. Um, all of them have been looted and partially burned. There's no place to buy anything. All the restaurants are gone. So post the demonstrations, the area became a, a food desert. Yes, extremely so. Uh, there's not even the option if you had a little bit of money. So we've, we've had kids walking around and, you know, 
rotten diapers. I mean, it, it really did get bad and there's been no coordinated response to help. And so we jumped in and uh, started taking donations and predictably those donations were great for a couple of weeks. And as people start to move on, they, they get less so, but we've been doing about 400 families a day coming through our facility to get food for that night. Let's talk about that, people moving on, because uh, as we speak, it's uh, you say that there's kind of a cliff on donations, is that right? It's what worries me. You know, George Floyd's murder, I think, woke a lot of people up uh, if they weren't already paying attention. Um, I hope they don't go back to sleep. And what we normally do is something like this happens and, and we all, you know, put the appropriate social media posts up. But then you move on and you move on to the next thing. And for some communities, certainly for my community, that's not possible. And we're going to be dealing with the fallout from this for years. I mean, the Lake Street was a vibrant area. It's a wasteland now. Uh, it's going to take a lot of time to bring it back. And the repercussions are going to be with us, not just in the property damage, but also in the need to make some changes. So I hope that people don't just turn the page. Okay, let's talk about uh, the GoFundMe. This is going to go to black and brown owned businesses in the Lake Street Corridor. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, Lake Street Corridor and Greater Minneapolis-St. Paul. If you were affected by the riots, then we're going to try to help out. The fund is looking forward. It's about making sure that those businesses stick around. And that's just the business side of it. There's There's a bigger onion here, but we can't do everything. But, you know, a year from now, we're functionally going to be in the same place, right? And I, and I don't think we're going to have massive police reforms nationally. We don't really have the leadership at the top to make things like that happen. So I just hope that the conversation keeps going and people don't just switch off. I think we're beginning to have this conversation, and any new conversations are always hard, but I really hope, I hope these conversations continue. You and me both. I think we have to recognize it's hard to do. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, I'm a guy. I've never been a woman. It's hard for me to talk to a woman about what it's like to be a woman and what freaks her out and what are the unique challenges that she has. And yeah, I have to talk to someone who I trust, um, who's not going to then go post on Facebook. Hey, this guy asked me this question. You know, what a jerk or, you know, why wouldn't you already know the answer? Isn't this so obvious? I mean, there has to be trust there. Trust is in mm-hmm. short supply these days yep but we got to start somewhere and you know it's like i said it's it's hard but that's no excuse it's still got to do it well you and i and sarah silverman are going to be having a conversation with the lucky winner of our raffle it's going to be a uh, a virtual cocktail party and we're going to be uh using some, uh, some of your distilled products some of your spirits You'll supply the recipe, and and what you do vodka, gin, and whiskey. Uh, vodka, gin, whiskey. We have an apple liqueur and a coffee liqueur. The one time I tried to drink, which probably is why I didn't drink until much later. I was like ten years old, and my parents went out, uh, you know, to dinner or something. And I went in my uh, parents' room, and my dad had bay rum, mm. uh, which is a cologne, but I thought it was rum. <laughs> So I I took a hit of the Bay Rum, (laughs) and I was off rum for quite a while. I imagine you were. (laughs) 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 Got to take a break right now. Uh, We'll be right back with St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup 
<laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Mr. Mayor, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about you. <laughs> you're in not a unique position, but a kind of rare position, which you're, you're the first black mayor of St. Paul. I guess that's unique. And both Twin Cities have had recent histories of police killing innocent African-American men. Your dad was a cop, Melvin II. You're the third, right? That's correct. Yeah. And so you're the son of a cop. You're a black man. Um, That puts you sort of in, I think, in a good position, interesting position. Uh, How does that guide you? It's a good question. I mean, at some point, it just is who I am. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, at some point, I don't know how to separate you know, that part of who I am versus every other part of who I am. Uh, I grew up, you know, praying for the safety of our officers. I grew up, you know, sending dad to work. He would work midnights and, you know, we'd get it. We'd have to tiptoe around the house during the day because he'd be trying to get his sleep between shifts. And, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd come home from school and turn on the TV and see some uh, horrific news report of something going on in the city and the manhunt is going and you know we'd be you know 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 that dad was on the on the on the search and you know be uh, hoping for his safety and praying for his safety so you know i remember those things very well i remember you know he was he was uh went on the department with a class of african-american officers who went on together after a, a a court order required them to required us uh, to desegregate our our police department was and that so we that in up, the seventies? In the early seventies, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And so we grew up around officers. My friends' fathers were officers, and you know we had you know they they knew us, and they would take us to football practice, and you know take us around, and they knew the neighborhood, they knew our friends, uh, and they knew community really well. So we really looked up to them and saw them just serving community in a really unique way that nobody else could. They'd solve problems. Uh, Al, that like uh, if you weren't an officer, you probably couldn't solve, and if you didn't weren't from the community, you probably wouldn't even know it was a problem in the first place. And you know, so we would see them. Uh, but then I turned 16 and started getting pulled over. Started meeting some. I used to tell my father I met a whole lot more of his coworkers then. And you know, we don't have time for me to tell you all of the just ridiculous stories of the times that I've been pulled over for things that just clearly had no, no you know, or searched. Uh, for things that just had clearly nothing to do with the way uh, that I was driving. And so, you know, to me, you know, the, the, it, it all really kind of goes together because as I think about my father, when he showed up, my hope was that people wouldn't judge him based on what some other officer did, uh, that if they thought he did something wrong, that he would have access to kind of fair process and be able to kind of tell his side of the story. And to tell you the truth, that's my hope for Philando Castile and for George Floyd and all the rest of us as well. And so I think the the, the main thing that I've tried to bring to the conversation is uh, that this is a conversation not about police versus community, but it's about it's a conversation about all of our humanity and our ability to recognize humanity and, you know, for all of the, the concerns that we have about officers and making sure that we're not having witch hunts on officers and things like that, uh, if your right uh, to culture or your job uh, means, you know, inability to, uh, you know, choke George Floyd for nine minutes, eight minutes and 46 seconds or, you know, shoot Philando Castile while he's in the car with his four-year-old, uh, then we have to reassess the whole thing. 
And that is what we're doing. We're talking about it at least, but we need policy. We do, and I think you're in a good position to do that by virtue of your background and also who you are. We've known each other for, what, like 13 years or something like that? At least, quite a, quite a while. It might be a little bit longer than that. 16, I think. I'm going 16. Okay, all right, all right. And I remember uh, going door knocking with you. That's right. <laughs> you went door knocking with me on election day in 2007 when I was first running for city council. And I ran. We ran between doors. That's, well, you're a runner. First of all, they should know this. You're a, a sprinter. You... I was. I was. I'm. I'm in my 40s now, so I, I can't. I can't say that in any present tense. No, but I mean, you were. You're fast. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. Okay. And what did you get? The full boat, a scholarship at, at Florida A&M. Yep, that's right. Okay, you're fast and smart, but mainly fast. But mainly fast. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> okay, Mr. Mayor, can I, um, you know, you should call me Al. Uh, I think you did. So I can call you Melvin, can I? Absolutely. Okay. And I know your folks pretty well. That's and your right. dad is just a stellar guy, and so is your mom. Uh, Melvin's mom has uh, been a county commissioner for as long as I can remember, and She's now the head of the board, right, or something? Yeah, she's the board chair. Yeah. And 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 look, they're they're who I get this from. So you know, my father, you know, when I was in high school, he was the juvenile detective for the area that included my high school, Central High School, which you know very well. His area covered my home, my uh, church, my high school, the, the the rec centers I grew up playing in, and I'd go to school, and people would say, you know, hey, I met your dad yesterday. And I go, oh, really? During during the during the work day, huh? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and know that that's what that meant. Um, but then they'd say, yeah, he was really cool. So my father founded a nonprofit organization called Save Our Sons. Uh, you've been to fundraisers for Save Our Sons, and you know, it ultimately came from this notion that I, I I've heard him tell this story that says like you'd have mothers who would come and he'd be the juvenile detective and they, they'd come and say, Hey, you got to help me like save my son. You got to help me do something. And as a police officer, the line for him was, well, call me if he does something illegal and I'll come arrest him. And that's not really what those mothers were looking for. Right. That uh, they they were looking for some thing, some, some ability to invest in these young men uh, before they were getting arrested or doing something that was jeopardizing their life or health or safety. And so that's why he started Save Our Sons, to mentor and to engage and intervene with these young men and try to uh, point them in a different space. And we have Save Our Sons boys uh, who have grown up to become uh, lawyers. Uh, one's a tax lawyer, uh, professionals, nurses, just oh, all types of Oh, he's a tax lawyer? Yeah, exactly. Great. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for your service. That's right. I'll tell him you said so. I'll tell him. But then, like with mom's work at the county in Ramsey County, mom uh, spearheaded a, an initiative called Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. It started, I think, 2005, and it started with this just simple notion that we have too many young people in detention. And I'll tell you, out we started off with uh, our our detention center beyond packed beyond capacity, literally cots in the halls. And uh, since 2005. They have reduced their average daily admissions to our juvenile detention centers by some somewhere right around eighty percent, and they have we've, we've we've closed Boys Totem Town, a residential kind of uh, secure facility for youth. Uh, we've closed whole wings of the juvenile detention centers, and we haven't seen uh, a correlating increase in juvenile crime. And the the, the great thing about that is, it, it, well, the terrible thing about our whole juvenile justice system in the first place is research shows that controlling for other factors, a young person who spends a night in juvenile detention is more likely to be an adult offender. We're actually, our, our juvenile justice system increases the likelihood of our young people to be adult offenders. So when we uh, work to reverse and interrupt those cycles, we're doing it not just around juvenile crime, but it's an investment in the next generation of our city. I want to ask you about Justin Ellis, who wrote an article for The Atlantic that monthly that I'm sure you've read, basically about this Band-Aid that's been ripped off or the scab that's been ripped off of Minneapolis. Most people think of the Twin Cities as this progressive haven. 
And the uh, George Floyd thing kind of, and that's, that thing is a murder, kind of laid bare the incredible disparities that we have in the Twin Cities. Now, this this is nationwide, but most people don't think of Minneapolis and St. Paul as cities that have huge disparities in academic achievement, for example. I think Minnesota is actually 50th in the country in terms of high school graduation. And I talked to Chris Coleman, your predecessor, just about this and this history and the history of redlining, uh, the history of uh, racism, systemic racism in the Twin Cities. It goes back quite a ways. What, what are your... Racism goes back quite a ways? Is that the quote you just said? Okay, that's an understatement. <laughs> Thanks, Melvin. It, it does go back quite a ways, yes, I would agree. I was I was saying in the Twin Cities. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Because historically, yes, there's been racism for at least 75, 80 years <laughs> in our country. <laughs> Give or take, at least. Yeah. Uh, but he he kind of, you know, on home ownership, he kind of pointed to uh, the GI Bill after World War II, soldiers coming back, and white soldiers getting houses, and black soldiers not, because they're redlined, and banks wouldn't loan to, to people who own houses in, in redlined areas. But what, what what has been your thinking about just this sort of disparity of what Americans, a lot of people think about the Twin Cities and the reality? In in, in many ways, the the Twin Cities is is America, right? It's a microcosm of America in a real microscope, and and people don't see us in this way. Uh, but we have this incredible international multilingual. Uh, intercultural space uh, where we have our historic African-American communities here. Uh, We have waves of uh, Irish and German refugees who were here. Uh, We have much more recent uh, Asian and African, uh, East African refugee communities who are all here kind of in this same space together. A very large Hmong community. A very large large Hmong community, very large Somali community. And and, and a lot of this is, in many ways, the Twin Cities is a fundamentally different metro area than even the Twin Cities metro area that I grew up in. And our systems haven't, we haven't transformed our systems uh, to keep pace with our transforming population and demographics. And so, yes, I think one of the most disturbing pieces about George Floyd's murder is just how historically unsurprising it is, is that, you know, we, we are uh, on the place on the road that we've been on our way to for quite some time. And that's not just Minneapolis and St. Paul. It's not just Minnesota. That's our country. We have this, you know, long history of racism that you just alluded to uh, that we haven't fully reckoned with. We haven't acknowledged. Ten years ago, we thought we were living in a post-racial society. Uh, I, I say we with air quotations around it. Uh, you know, we had this conversation about living in a post-racial society, uh, which, you know, now we realize just how asinine uh, that notion is. But when we see Philando Castile uh, and Eric Garner and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all of these people uh, on this long line of black men and women in particular, uh, unarmed, unaggressive, uh, killed by law enforcement, uh, and no one held accountable. And I think one of the strongest uh, social commentaries at this moment is that Officer Chauvin and those other three officers killed George Floyd in, clo- in cold blood on television. And none of us are conf- – I don't know anybody who would bet pink slips that, that they're going to face prison for it because from Philando Castile on, every single one of these videos – and I think uh, – uh, Will Smith, I think it was, said recently, you know, at some point, you know, racism isn't new. It's just being filmed now. Mm-hmm. But over the last 10 years, we've seen video after video after video. And the rhetorical question, the the hurtful, harmful, painful rhetorical question has been just like, how bad and brazen does it have to be in order for somebody to be held accountable? And, you know, time after time, 
each video we see goes, okay, that's got to be the one. Like now, like somebody's going to go to prison for that. And over and over and over again, we see either, you know, people not even be charged uh, or being charged and having a dramatic trial and then being acquitted. And so at some point, unless there's accountability, uh, then of course that is going to continue to play out. And then you have the, 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 I think insult to injury is when people see instead of housing resources and instead of section eight, instead of food, instead of child care supports, uh, instead of the type of investments that would help to stabilize a community, uh, those types of investments like my father was trying to build through Save Our Sons, instead of that, uh, we just spend $200 billion on policing and prisons in our country uh, so that we can sort of uh, try to isolate the rest of us from that element, you know, so to speak. And I think that creates a level of resentment, and that's what's literally boiling over in our streets right now. Yeah, that's obviously compounding historical mistakes, locking people up and, you know, taking men from their families. So the kids grow up without their their father. That's not a good idea. And look, we literally spend more over the last 30 years in America. We've spent more on prisons and police every single year. Right. And go look at Gallup. Their polling shows that Americans feel every single year they poll Americans and something like two thirds of Americans uh, feel like crime is worse this year than it was last year. So we just keep doing the, literally the same. What's what's that quote about doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result being the definition of insanity? That's it's time the for quote. An approach to public safety. Well, yeah, and of course, that isn't true. Our crime, you know, we are safer. Right. Uh, crime has gone down. That's right. You know, every year, and part of the reason they may think it hasn't because Donald Trump lies about it. Say it went up uh, during the Obama years, which it it didn't. And Al, it's not just Donald Trump, but you know, like yep. police unions, private prison operators, all of the folks who have uh, deep levels of investment uh, in our prison industrial, public safety industrial complex, are spending a lot of money to tell us that we're in danger, uh, we're a lot less safe, uh, and that we should be worried about you know, quote unquote, those people. And, you know, one of the things that we are uh, working hard to break in St. Paul is the notion that we're going to spend, we're going to allocate millions of dollars uh, based on that fear-based rhetoric that has no basis in data or fact. Uh, And so, you know, we're we're pushing very hard for a public safety framework that centers around evidence and data, uh, things that are, you know, proven by independent research to be effective. Uh, and using that data to guide our decision making on a day to day and year to year basis, and I'll tell you, it's a challenge, but we're we're going to do it. Well, then you've been looking at data, I'm sure. And what does that data tell you? Now, I mean, for example, some of the expenditures that we're seeing uh, police forces use are things like, you know, the armored vehicles and grenade launchers. You did a letter reform on the use of tasers, didn't you, when you were in the city council? Yep, that would have been 2008. I think it was in preparation for the uh, RNC in St. Paul. And what was that? What tell us about that? Well, it, it was it was a request from our chief at the time to to purchase tasers for every officer, and tasers can be a great tool if they're used in substitute for a gun, but the concern is. Uh, in, as we've seen in video after video, a culture of escalation uh, and violence in law enforcement, the concern is that we'll use it in situations where words could su- suffice and, and, and respect uh, could suffice and, you know, just uh, interactions that are, are based on shared humanity could suffice. And my perspective at the time was, and I still believe we didn't have at that time, uh, the level of um, uh, policies and procedures uh, and, and safeguards in place uh, to govern when and how they should be used and when they are used, uh, how that use of force is reported. Uh, is a taser, this is kind of you know a, a global question, is, is a taser less than lethal force? Is it non-lethal force? Is it, is it potentially lethal force? Uh, where does it land on those kind of use of force continuums that are all in the news kind of these days? Uh, and so I just wasn't comfortable uh, saw some uh, at the time. Saw some, you know, police reports of people who had been 
sort of drive stunned by tasers because they were, you know, the, the officer wanted them to stand up, but they didn't, or they wanted them to sit down or come this way and they didn't, and were drive stunning people like cattle. And that's something that we uh, have written out of our policies at this point, but uh, I had to work with the police department to, to come up with a fundamentally new approach. By the way, uh, at the time, our training materials on how and when uh, and where to use them uh, was uh, written by a company called Taser International, uh, which <laughs> struck me as a little circular. Well, they know tasers, I'll say that. Uh, let's talk about police reform writ large. People are very aware that the Minneapolis City Council has voted to defund the police department in Minneapolis. We don't know exactly what that means. You are obviously thinking a lot about this. What is your approach on police reform? Our approach is a, a couple of things. One We've seen just in the last couple of weeks the sort of paradox of policing, right? We've seen some of the worst policing humanly possible on video uh, between seeing George Floyd's horrific uh, and like hauntingly casual murder uh, while this officer has his hand in his pocket. We've seen a 75-year-old man just pushed for no reason in a way that he sustained brain damage because of it. Uh, we've seen, you know, uh, a, a young man shot in the back by police and just we've seen all these all, all of these videos and all these just horrific examples. At the same time, though, we've seen uh, our officers uh, step forward to try to protect some of the neighborhoods that have been targeted uh, for, you know, uh, the civil unrest. I don't I don't I don't call them demonstrations or protests because those aren't protests. We've seen, you know, some really amazingly beautiful, peaceful protests uh, across our country. But then we've also seen people who seemingly just came out to break a window and start a fire. St. Paul, actually, in in that, I mean, it, it, any destruction was terrible. But St. Paul got off better. I mean, obviously, this was the Minneapolis Police Department. But you had your police out there on the first night. Am I right? Oh yeah, we had them out there the whole the, that whole week. I mean, it was a it was a, a, a scary week. Um, oh, and that's what I was saying is like we needed them and we relied on them. We relied on them to usher peaceful protests and peaceful marches in front of the Capitol, in front of the governor's residence, down the freeway, down some of our major streets in our city. So we relied on them, and that's the paradox. We 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 need officers who uh, understand and respect our humanity and our lives are on the line and praying that when we call for help, it's not Derek Chauvin re responding to us. Well, we're going to take a little break right now. We'll be right back with St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Welcome back. I'm talking to Melvin Carter, the mayor of St. Paul. I, I just want to go to what you see as police reform in your city. It's a great question. It starts with transparency. It starts with uh, ensuring our communities uh, that uh, our officers are accountable, that we're transparent, uh, that we are a part of community, uh, and that we're not an occupying force that's here to sort of uh, enforce the line between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, I think it starts, people talk a lot about training, uh, but I think it starts upstream of that. 
our, our, our chief uh, always says you hire the person and train the cop. We need, you know, instead of hiring people from all over the globe who uh, may have a police officer certification uh, and then trying to teach them uh, about diversity and trying to teach them about community and trying to teach them uh, where our local neighborhood recreation centers are. You know, my father's a perfect example of somebody who grew up knowing every single person in community, knowing all the community institutions, the leaders, the gathering spaces, uh, the kind of unwritten codes, uh, and then was trained to be a, a really good police officer. Uh, and so I think it starts with who you hire. I, I firmly believe that, you know, if you got to train somebody not to kneel on somebody's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, uh, then that person should be disqualified from ever having a badge in the first place. Uh, and so, you know, tra training is important, but it starts with hiring. Uh, it starts with how we train. It starts with how we uh, hold each other accountable. Uh, and it means being able to fire folks. Our, our chief and chiefs across the country would tell you that they see officers uh, who, you know, commit egregious acts that fall below our standards, that betray the public trust, and, and they fire them just to see them reinstated through arbitration processes by police unions that somehow have created this culture of just protecting police officers at, 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 at all costs. And this is where you see the Minneapolis police union president lamenting publicly that the national press won't refer to George Floyd as a violent criminal. You know, the, the, those, are, those, are, those are people who are the stewards or the keepers of this culture that we absolutely fundamentally have to break. And so there's that, there's that accountability. There's like having those officers, those civilian officers who are part of community and walk among us. But then there's also beyond that, there's, there's the point that people call 911 for a whole bunch of reasons and they don't all mandate somebody showing up with a badge and a gun. People call 911 because somebody's in crisis or there's somebody with mental health challenges or, 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 or in a uh, uh, addiction or overdose type of scenario. And so, you know, I think another piece of it is to say, how do we invest instead of just investing all the money after the fact, after a crime uh, occurs and saying we're going to race as fast as we can to the spot after something bad happens. Well, that's not good enough for my kids. That's not good enough for our family. Like we, we, we ought to be investing to reduce the likelihood that something bad is going to happen in the first place. And so I think it also uh, includes, uh, as we think about law enforcement reform, is going to have to include uh, some balanced and measured investments uh, so that we are making the, the, the proactive type of measures uh, that can help us stabilize neighborhoods. And I'll tell you, I think that's going to be critical towards debunking the resentment that people across our country have for the police officers in the first place when we can always afford to hire you know, a million more police officers in our country, but we can never afford to clear the Section 8 waiting list. What you're talking about is a huge task, but it's a huge task we have to undertake. We have communities, in, uh, and, and too often it's color-coded, literally, but we have communities in our across in our country where we're investing, you know, more in our schools and in our young people than we are in law enforcement after something bad happens. Uh, it, it just so happens that those communities very rarely overlap with the places in our communities where you have the largest populations of people of color. When, when you were talking about who shows up from a 911 call, that was what I took defunding to mean that instead of a cop with a gun, you have a mental health professional show up when there's a mental health problem. You have a drug, uh, a person knows how to deal with someone who is addicted to drugs or, or uh, help them. And that to me is what I interpret as defunding. Also, well, maybe some of the equipment that we were talking about, like grenade launchers, et cetera. Yeah, and I think the equipment is important. I think the equipment is sort of a, a, a relic of a culture, right? Uh, if you think about cultures, they have you know behaviors and they have relics. I'm not remembering all the things from my anthropology classes, uh, but those relics become like those symbols of culture become important because you know when you have a police department that's getting from the Department of Defense, you know, the tanks and the rocket launchers and all that type of stuff uh, that's intended to uh, engage a hostile enemy, well, then it, that'll, of course, help seed a, a culture that when we go out into the neighborhoods of our streets, when we're patrolling in front of our grocery stores, uh, we're engaging a hostile enemy. And so, yes, those 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 
those what's the I don't remember what the word is, but those 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 relics uh, have to change. We have to start getting rid of those. Uh, and but the bigger piece is 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 the mentality that fundamentally speaking just has to change. And to your point about having those other folks who respond out, if there's one thing teachers and police officers have in common, we always hear them say, we can't be the social workers. We can't be the mental health counselors. We don't have the capacity or experience uh, to be the drug counselors and all of these other things that that, that the children and the, the, the families that we serve need. Well, that's an acknowledgement right there from our police officers that our communities would be better off if we had resources to help uh, to help uh, fund those types of supports. And so it's 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 insane to me that every time we try to say, well, let's let's put some money into social workers. That's one of the things we're doing in St. Paul. We've uh, embedded social workers into police cars uh, to co-respond, to show up with an officer uh, when we get some of those kind of calls for people in crisis to help connect them to resources and support and, and not just further crisis. But when we propose things like that, you know, there's always somebody who's ready to say, oh, you're anti-cop. Well, no, this is providing a resource that our police officers have very, very clearly said over and over and over again that would help. I think it's fair to say you're not anti-cop. Your dad was, is, well, was a great cop and a community, but he did, he did drive a tank, I know, through the neighborhood. <laughs> right. It was so, a big white conversion van that looked like something out of Scooby-Doo. That's actually true. He did ride one of those. Oh, he did. Okay. But it, it wasn't <laughs> a, a tank. While. It wasn't a tank. Now, where did where did you grow up? I'm just this is a, a real odd segue. But did you grow up in Rondo? I did. I grew up in the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul. You know the history. Yep. Uh, it's the neighborhood, and this story has played out literally all across the country, from Detroit to Oakland and everywhere in between. It's the neighborhood in St. Paul that was a thriving, historic African American community. Doctors and lawyers, and my grandfather owned a half a dozen, over a half a dozen commercial properties out there. And that's the neighborhood that was completely uprooted to build the freeway I-94 here in St. Paul. Yeah. Uh, without. Of course, consulting anyone in Rondo and we're compensating or compensating them. That's true. And my father remembers as a child, not just being kicked out of his mother's home, but seeing his mom's home burned down by our fire department as a training exercise. And so when you see instances like that, Al, where the fire department, the, the very people who we pay our taxes to to protect me from fire, just burned down my mother's home the very people who who George Floyd pays taxes to to protect him in emergency put their knee on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds so that's what creates the it adds the insult to the injury for it these are the folks who we are paying to do the very opposite uh, of the service that we're getting from them and, and what i understand was when you say people weren't compensated they weren't fairly compensated at all right if that's your right. house was taken you got pennies on the on the dollar, right? Quite literally, yes, yes. As as if there isn't enough wealth, your your number one source of capital or your money is your home, and right. for them to take that away and not compensate you is a crime. But I That's guess exactly there were right. a lot of crimes. There That's what are. You're saying. And, and that goes back to what you were talking about, about redlining, as we think about how as we think about how wealth is organized in our country. One, there's just no way to with a straight face uh, pretend that the great wealth that is America uh, is not directly created, directly rooted in the institution of American slavery. Uh, which, as we celebrate uh, Juneteenth uh, and have this mm -hmm. conversation about Juneteenth, uh, is is very relevant right now. And you know, every time somebody says that, somebody says, "Well, that's 400 years ago." Uh, I, I I I share with folks, Al, if if I was a billionaire because my great great grandfather uh, stole a million dollars from your great great grandfather, uh, you you might have some feelings about that. Even if I say, "Oh, that was that's in the past. Get over it." Um, but even beyond that. From the Homestead era uh, to, to, to redlining uh, to, you know, Tuskegee experiment uh, to, you know, uh, the, the interstates, the way the interstates came through uh, to the very well-documented continued disparities that exist uh, and systemic discrimination that exists and everything from home lending uh, to college application processes, uh, the, 
it, it, it's not that something happened, you know, 150 years ago uh, that somebody's still complaining about. It's that those same economic forces have continued to play out, have continued to exacerbate themselves. Uh, and in the midst of all of it, you know, one of the most tragic, uh, heinous parts of the way we've now organized our criminal justice system is on top of all of that, once somebody's been arrested, and we know in particular African-American men are, are severely overcriminalized in America, uh, then they can't vote and be a part of the solution to help turn it around anyways. And if you're a young man who uh, gets arrested for pot possession, then you're not eligible for certain federal scholarships, right? That's right. And those right. arrests were very, very skewed. Blacks and whites smoke marijuana at the same percentage, and but the arrests of blacks for possession of marijuana much, much higher, five to one or something. That's it, exactly. Because if in my neighborhood, uh, we spend more on police than we do on our schools and mental health supports and you know chemical health. Uh, and in your neighborhood, we spend more on mental health supports and schools and chemo chemical health. Uh, well, then, then, then I'll be uh, hypercriminalized. I'll have what's called the enforcement bias that, you know, all of us, if a police officer drives, follows us long enough, they can come up with something to pull us over for. And so, you know, we'll get overcriminalized uh, while somebody else will get resources. And that's what's making people so angry. Do you think this moment that we will build on this moment, do you think that there has been a change? There, there was a lead up to George Floyd in terms of there was one after another. But that video is so hideous in so many ways. And what we saw national and worldwide. But I, I, the data on polling in terms of do we have systemic racism in this country, that was a huge jump. Mm -hmm. And I think people woke up. I'm hoping people woke up. And I've seen moments like this go away. But what do you see? Do you see do you see this as a real moment to build on? I'd I'd say two things. One is the shortest answer is yes. Uh and I've felt that before, right? After Philando Castile was killed, uh we had his funeral at the cathedral in St. Paul. That felt like a, just a fundamental turning point uh that just felt like we can't go back from here. Uh, and yet here we are once again. And so I think one of the things that that, that uh, is is clear to me is, you know, we've been to these funerals before. We've, you know, tweeted these hashtags before. We've demanded justice before. Uh, and so the truth is none of what's happened already really makes this moment fundamentally different than those other moments that we've had. Uh, what's going to make it different is what happens next. Um, I am encouraged by just what seems to be an awakening, if you believe that that kind of national polling that you just described. I'm, I'm also encouraged, like, it's really incredible. Like, we had really just one night of the just horrific, riotous, arsonist type of behavior that, you know, other cities have had a, a, a lot more of. And the next morning, just literally, like, out of nowhere, just neighbors showed up with shovels and brooms and trash cans and paintbrushes and, you know, sponges to just help each other clean up and they weren't just helping like their friends their friend with their friends business or something like that they're just coming out to help strangers we've had business leaders who uh, have had their business literally still boarded up and before they fix their own windows before they fix their own business they've transformed their parking lot into a supply drive to help families you know kind of just come and give and take the supplies that people need uh, we had a business owner uh, in our midway area that was like at the epicenter of all of it that uh, she, we were standing outside of her building and it was completely burned down. She's going to have to do a complete rebuild. And she told me, you know, I've lost everything. And I said, I know, but we're going to be with you as you rebuild. And she said, no, no, no. I, I, I was just trying to say I can, I have time to help with the fundraising efforts uh, for other businesses as well. Uh, and that type of spirit of in the way that people are just taking care of each other, people who wouldn't really have a way of even knowing each other otherwise, that to me feels like uh, something new. Uh, the, the energy that exists across our country, I, I'm very convinced that this energy that we've seen, this this like this fiery spirit across our country, I should say, 
uh, I, I think is the same energy that built America. It's the same energy that abolished slavery. It's the same energy uh, that uh, ushered in civil rights. Uh, and I think channeled healthily, channeled productively, that's the same energy that's going to make this a fundamentally different moment and God willing, uh, relieve our children from having to having to live through these cycles over and over and over again in the way that we've had to. I see that, and I have a lot of hope for that. And, of course, um, we have a presidential election coming up. We have elections for the Senate and the House. Um, I have a good feeling about the direction that's going, and I have a good feeling that there will be concrete steps here. I also saw that at least the Republicans on police reform actually gave lip service. That was an improvement. They, they basically I, are putting legislation together in the Senate that kind of has a lot of the same ideas. They just aren't actually funded or mandatory. Yeah, that, I, I tell you, that was really disappointing. Senator Scott started that press conference by saying, we see you and we hear you. Uh, and then he, the, the, there was very little in the rest of that announcement uh, to make, I would imagine, the, the folks who have just been called out into the streets to fight against injustice uh, feel seen or heard. You know what? Al, this feels like like the Hunger Games. Like Americans are being are losing their lives in ways that are unjust, uh, in ways that are just brutal uh, and 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 horrific, uh, and and are on television for God's sake. And uh, what we're hearing from the Capitol is, uh, well, we're going to study it and we're going to create a commission, and we're going to create some uh, incentives. Uh, for for jurisdictions across the country to to, to voluntarily uh, sign up to stop doing this, and and that's just not enough. I mean, they couldn't even find the fortitude to ban chokeholds. Like at, at some level, we just saw George Floyd choked to death for eight minutes and forty six seconds. Like it'd be nice to just hear from Washington D.C. You know what? You can't do that. Just period. It's not. We're not going to tie it to incentives or grants. We're just going to say you can't do that. And they couldn't bring themselves to do that. That, that that's hurtful. Uh, you know, I, I don't imagine that uh, that that's going to be satisfactory for the people who are demanding just a fundamental restructuring uh, of the way the relationship uh, between law enforcement and community works. Melvin, I I know your time is incredibly valuable, but um, you know, I just am so gratified to see how great you're doing, and um, I just love your folks. And I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm proud of you. That's kind of stupid. But I'm proud of you because we have a mayor in St. Paul that's great. You're killing it, man. I'm doing what I can, and I appreciate you saying so. You know, this this is such a such a big moment that oftentimes it just feels like no matter what we do, it's not enough. But I appreciate you saying so. That beautiful music is from Leo Kotke. I want to make sure to remind you to subscribe to the Al Franken Podcast. Uh, you can do that by subscribing to the Al Franken Podcast. And uh, also, uh, review us on whatever the hell you're on. And I want to thank my executive producer, Peter Ogburn, for all he does to make this a great, great podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. 
The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.